And as we, <clears throat> as we come to uh, the time where we, we read the word of God as we heard it, uh, or as we hear it proclaimed and preached to us here, um, let's come before God and let's pray and ask for uh, his blessing, ask for attentiveness as well for, for us in this time. <clears throat> Lord God, we, we want to be hearers. We want to be hearers of your word, but yet we confess that we are not always the most attentive, uh, whether it be uh, being distracted in certain ways, whether it be certain things in your word which cause us to, to put our shields up, whether it be just simply some of the strange content that we have in a passage like we do today, or it could even just be our own unwillingness to hear. We pray because we need to hear from your word. We pray that your spirit would be in this time, uh, causing our, our souls to come to life yet again. Make this word clear to us and relevant to us also. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are this morning going to be in Genesis chapters 16 and 17. We have been going through a series in, in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, and so we now come to uh, chapter 16 and 17. We're actually, they are related, but I'm going to read just Genesis 16 first. Um, and then we'll read, pick up then later and read the rest of Genesis 17. So this is the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Abram was 86, year old, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. <clears throat> I need to begin this sermon with, with a confession. I oftentimes read the advice columns in the newspaper. Uh, it's not because I particularly think it's good advice. Um, some of it is because it's right underneath the crossword, which is one of the first things I like to do in the newspaper. Um, but it's also, though, one of the reasons why I inevitably always find myself reading the advice columns is because it reminds me of the train wreck of the situations that people oftentimes find themselves in, that people even make their lives. And I don't read that in, I don't mean that in some sort of entertaining way, uh, making light of some of the situations, but you see though how one bad decision can oftentimes lead to another and another and another, and people get hurt. Uh, it's sometimes comical to read, oh, who are these people in these advice columns? But we need to remember those are real people who are experiencing real hurts, even though it may have been from situations that they have put themselves in. But the thing is, though, people get hurt, and God's people are also just as capable of doing some of those same things. We can't look at at God's people, at believers, and say, for not any different. Because we see a passage like this today, and we see Abram and Sarai, people to whom God has given this great promise, a people who are extolled for their faith in the, later in the New Testament, and we see that they still make these horrible messes of these situations, and they leave even one another in despair and in distress. This story here reads almost like a, like a daytime soap opera. There's a weird relationship triangle, wife swapping, jealousy, arguments, and blaming. But this isn't daytime TV. These are real people here that we are reading about in real history who have suffered from real collateral damage. And a young woman is left deeply wounded and afraid and pregnant and in distress as a result. The title of this sermon, if you've seen, is, is God in our distress and doubts. We see both happening here. We're going to see first with, with Hagar as this woman who's in distress. But God, though, comes to her in that time and appears to her and reveals himself to her. And there's important things that we can learn from that. And so what is it that happens? How do we get here? Well, Abram's story, the whole story of Abram is defined by promise of God giving him an old man without any kids and whose wife who dealt with infertility before she also got old, God giving him a promise of a multitude. As Daryl brought out last week then, looking in, in Genesis chapter 15, the, the, the chapter right before here, God had not only made this promise that seemed too good to be true, he confirmed it to him also in this way that seemed too good to be true. In this elaborate ceremony that involved cut-up animals, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham, and he showed him that everything, all the, the demands of that covenant, were going to be laid upon himself. God initiated the covenant. God enacted the covenant. 
And God was going to see that everything necessary for that covenant um, would, would happen, that it would all come to pass. He was going to give Abram children. But here we are now in the story. Time continues to pass, and there's no sign of it. In fact, we find out at the end of chapter 11, looking at his age to when the age of Abram was that he was first given to him, of 11 years of waiting so far, right? That's a long time, 11 years. What were you doing 11 years ago? It's 2011. Who were you? If you have kids, who, who were your kids? What were they doing? What were the big life events that, that you were undergoing? It's a long time. And Sarai eventually recognizes that this isn't going to happen naturally. She's now past childbearing years. She's in menopause now. Her body has had a hard time conceiving beforehand. And now her body and her hormones are at the stage where it's just not going to happen. But you can tell, though, that they're still trying to grasp at this promise in some desperate way. But not in this way that's entirely trusting. God says we're going to have kids. Maybe he means something else. Maybe it's time we look into other options. Maybe this is what he meant. Maybe we have to help the process along a little bit. Now, this culture didn't have IVF, didn't have infertility clinics, but they did have another method. Surrogacy. Bearing a child through a surrogate mother who would then give up the child to the wife. So at least half of the genetics of that child would be through the man. So maybe they're thinking, this is the answer. Maybe we need a surrogate. Maybe this is what God meant. How about we use a surrogate like Hagar? Let's be clear here. First of all, this is wrong. We'll get at some of the levels of wrong here. But for as wrong as it was, I don't think that this was just an act of direct rebellion against God. Because what do they know? They know that God promised them a child. But it seems so impossible. They've waited so long. And they're trying, though, here's the thing. They're trying to make sense of God's promise in their circumstances. They're trying to believe in God as best, though, as they see possible. And they're not taking his word entirely as it is. See, in our own desperate times, we can often be convinced of all sorts of things that might seem right, even though deep down we know that they're not. The single person who's been waiting for so long for a spouse, well, this person might be okay, even though they're not a believer. Or the person who's in an unsatisfying marriage, maybe God actually wants me to not be with this person, but with someone else. The person suffering deep emotional pain or loss. This substance here, it's just a way for me to cope. But in those moments of our strongest confusion, what we need most is to hear what God has clearly said. Because there are real consequences when we don't listen. And those consequences aren't just always for ourselves. It's not a matter of just doing our own business and then sucking it up when the fallout comes upon our own heads. Yes, we we stand to have all sorts of hurt and guilt on our own, but there are other people who also suffer the collateral damage. Real people who get hurt in serious ways, ways that we may not always even understand. And in this case, it's Hagar. The whole time she's treated like property or simply as a means to an end. Just because she's Sarai's maidservant, doesn't mean that she isn't a real person who deserves dignity. 
It begins with Sarai offering up Hagar to Abram to be the surrogate. Why don't you just try to get her pregnant and then she'll give us the baby and then we'll raise up a child on our own. But where do we see, though, what Hagar thinks of all of this? We don't. As a foreign servant, she likely didn't have any say in this matter. There is zero lack of respect for Hagar. All they want from her is her womb, and they will even transgress the bounds of her own sexual consent. And Abram agrees. Again, we have to think, this is the man of faith that we read about then? And he impregnates Hagar all according to Sarai's plan. Things don't turn out, though, to be as expected, which really just goes to show us that our own sinful plans and the illicit acts that we lay out, they rarely satisfy us. Even when they go, do go through as intended, just as often they leave us feeling guilty or upset or dirty. In this culture, pregnancy was a sign of favor. It was a status that young women wanted to have. And so, Hagar, previously at the bottom of the social chain before, now she begins to strut her stuff a little bit more, get a little prideful and haughty, and even towards her own mistress, Sarai. And she gets so upset about this, how her plan also backfires, that she becomes so cruel to Hagar until she finally then just flees out of desperation. She runs away from Abram and Sarai, away from an abusive situation, and now we find her in the wilderness, escaping back to her old home in Egypt. And so who's in the wrong here? Who's responsible for this whole scene? Is it Hagar? I mean, she has a certainly a, a part to play here, the way she looked with contempt on her mistress, but that is no excuse, though, for the abuse and the mistreatment that was given to her in return. No, the ones who are in the wrong here, the culprits are Abram and Sarai. Sarai hatched a plan, Abram went along with it, and then both of them left Hagar in this devastated position. And stories like this continue even today. When individuals are used for people's illicit plans, and then they're tossed coldly aside when others are through with them. Or when the weak and the vulnerable, especially women, are abused and they're trashed and then they're left by the side of the road. And just like Abram and Sarai, even religious people do these sorts of things, disguising it under the cover of so-called faith. And that's not faith, and that's not okay in the eyes of God. It is sin, and like all sin, God hates it. He abhors it. His holy character rages against it, and he is a just judge, and he will have his comeuppance on that someday. God comes looking and seeking out the battered and the bruised and abandoned people who are trying to stumble home or find a place of safety. He offers himself as a refuge for those who are alone. And for those who are most alone, he sees them even when the evil deeds done against them are in total darkness. God shows up and he appears to Hagar here in the wilderness. And the name that he goes by, that she confers upon him, she recognizes in his character, he's a God of seeing. In verse 13, you are a God of seeing, or even can be translated, you are a God who sees me. 
God saw Hagar as she was handed over to Abram and brought into her tent. He saw her innermost being as she conceived. He saw as the child was growing within her womb. He saw every moment as Sarai oppressed her. He saw everything. And he sees her here as she's alone and she's crying out in the wilderness. God sees and he appears. The angel of the Lord comes to her. Now, is this God coming in visible form? Uh, The pre-incarnate Christ? Maybe. Uh, I think more likely that it's an angel sent as a special messenger to her. But what's most important in this here is that this angel, the Lord, is the representative of God himself. He comes on behalf of and comes representing God, seeking her out and coming to her in her distress. Because that's what God does. He seeks out those who are in distress and he comes to their aid. The Psalms extol him because he is the defender of the widow and the orphan, the most helpless and the vulnerable. This is the compassion of God right before her. It's the compassion of God that we also see in Jesus. That when we were helpless and weak, Christ died for us. He didn't sit on the sideline. He didn't stare us down. He didn't just look down from heaven, but he was moved with compassion. The gospels repeatedly say that Jesus, when he looked at the people in their distress, when he saw the weary and the weak and the wounded and the sick and the oppressed, that he was moved with compassion. Uh, the, 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 the Greek word in the New Testament is actually one that it's, it literally is like moved in the bowels, moved in the gut. It's that sort of compassion, that gut-wrenching compassion when you see something and you recognize, oh, and the emotion behind it, and you can feel it in your gut. That's the emotion. That's the compassion that Jesus had and continues to have. And then he brought them out then of their distress by healing them or by, by casting out the demons or by even raising their dead. Friends, if you are wondering... Who God is. If you're wondering, is he truly compassionate? If you're struggling to see that, especially if and when God's people can be just downright nasty. If you're wondering, is God really compassionate? Look at Jesus. Look at God himself incarnate in his full compassion. And that's important to keep in mind. Because what the angel tells Hagar in verse 9 might sound a little hard. Go back to the situation of distress. Go back to Sarai. The child still belongs to Abram. And he says, I will multiply him greatly. He may not be the son promised by God, but he is a son of Abram nonetheless. And God will care for Hagar and her son, who she's then to name Ishmael. Ishmael. That name just means, means God hears. Every time that, he would say, that she would say his name, every time that she would hear it on the lips of others, it would be a reminder of God that he came to her and that he heard her. And even in the suffering and distress that God would continue to know and to hear. And Hagar recognizes this because she then says, well, you are a God of seeing. You're a God who sees all things. You're a God who sees me. And he cares. 
Friends, the Lord, of, the Lord is a God of seeing. He sees you in your suffering and in your distress and in your difficulty, even if it remains hidden and silent. He sees and he knows with all of his compassion. Now this sermon here, again, I've, I've titled it, God in our distress and our doubts. It's clear that Hagar is the one who is in distress. So who are the doubters then? It's Abram and Sarai. It's often said by skeptics, if God only gave me a clear sign, then I would believe. And maybe you've thought something similar before, right? If God only showed up or did some sort of miracle or sign right before my eyes, then I could really trust, then I could really have some faith. But is that really true, though? Are we really so confident of that? Because Abram had not long before this seen something far beyond any of us will ever see. God coming down to him in this elaborate covenant ceremony with a flaming torch and a fire pot. I mean, it's something, I mean, that's, I don't know about you. If you ever see anything like that, please tell me. <laughs> you would think that that would leave an imprint on his mind, right? Especially someone like Abram who is commended for his faith in the New Testament. But look at him here though now. God shows up with a sign that we're all asking for. And instead of really believing like we think we would do, he has a hard time holding on. And having a, wa- a wavering faith or a hard time believing it is an, is an understa- it's an understatement of the matter. Abram and Sarai have tried to take the situation into their own hands. And not only have they disbelieved God, they have wrecked this young woman's life. Look at the timeline from uh, verse 16, and you can even look at the first verse of chapter 17. Uh, If you just look at the the difference in years there, for another 13 years, they don't hear anything from God. What do you think must have been going on through their minds? We have failed miserably. Has God left us? Have we just been so unfaithful and so disbelieving that he's just decided that he's done? Suddenly we have another appearance of God, and that's in chapter 17. And let me read that for us then. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male threat your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham and then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of, the, of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in, in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. All right. God appears to Abram, this doubter. The one who's doubted the covenant here, the one who's wrecked someone else's life, he appears to him and he says, this is my name. My name is God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty. It is a name that emphasizes his sovereignty and his all-powerful nature. This is the name that Abram needed to hear and to remember. This is a name that transcends all human boundaries. It's a name that, that says that he is far able to do beyond what seems naturally capable because this God is able to make the unnatural seemingly normal as he intervenes. It's this God who then confirms his covenant with Abram, he reminds him that he continues to be a God who upholds his own covenant faithfulness. And the covenant promise itself could be boiled down to verse 7, where it says, to be a God to Abram and his offspring forever. And with that, then, we understand that the God Almighty, the one who sits above all, the one who is sovereign, he's also a relational God. It's implied by his very covenantal nature. By he enters into covenants of promise with people. Why does he keep making these covenants and, and binding himself to people throughout the Bible? Why does he continue then to give signs of his promise with Abraham? It's because he wants to. Because he's a relational God. He wants to have covenantal relationship. He binds himself to his people. It's how he expresses his own 
relationships then by uniting himself to others by making these indissoluble covenants. Central to the Christian life is living in this covenant relationship with God. Not you making a covenant with God, but him making one with you. Over and over, God refers to this as my covenant. He initiates it with Abram. He starts and he makes the relationship and then he calls him to live in response. Now, living in relationship with God is sometimes talked about in some some cliche way. Like, like what does that even mean? Is it a relationship like my friend? Do we talk to each other? But the reality is far better than that. Knowing him in relationship is to know him so that he will never depart. Knowing him means knowing him as he is in all his attributes and his character. And knowing him also means then living in response to him also. And it means being known intimately, being known deeply by God. God knows Abraham. He knows his wavering in his faith. So he tells him that all these promises that he's made to him before will come to pass. Sarai's going to have a baby. It's not going to be Ishmael, but it's going to be a son from her own womb, despite her age, will be named Isaac. And the covenant then will continue through him and to his further generations. And because he knows Abram in all of his doubts and the struggles with faith that he's had before, he gives both he and Sarai two signs of his promises. And first of all, he changes their names. He changes from Abram to Abraham. And names have meaning. Abram means exalted father, but he changes it to Abraham, means, which means father of a multitude. So what's the difference? Why is that so important? It's in what they point to. One looks back and the other one looks ahead. Exalted father looks back to his lineage. Likely Abram's own father had some sort of royal heritage to him there. But this other though, father of a multitude, it looks ahead It looks ahead to what he would be only by God's promise and only through God's promise. And then he changes his name, Sarai's name to Sarah. Both of these, though, mean princess. Like Abraham, again, the first looks back and the other looks ahead. Princess looking back before to some sort of royal heritage that she too must have had. But princess, though, looking ahead to the royal nation that that would come from her, that it would not just be a people, but there would be kings and royalty coming from her. And like Ishmael, every time that their names were spoken, it was a reminder of God's promise. Every time that they introduced themselves, hi, I'm Abraham. They made themselves known to someone else and they said their names They were speaking and they were identifying themselves in light of God and his promise and who he was making them out to be. No longer was it who they were, but who God was making them. Now, can you imagine how comforting that would be to this old couple trying desperately to cling to God's promises? Despite all the natural odds, God was on their side and viewing them, not through who they were, not in the ways that they had failed before, that they had failed to trust his promises, but by the promises themselves that God himself had made and that they would come to pass. Can you imagine how that was comforting to them? Is that comforting to you? 
because he does that also when he looks at his people who are in Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at people like you and me who are doubters, sinners, and weak. He doesn't look at us by what we've done. He doesn't look at us from where we've come from, but he looks at you through the lens of his son. Righteous, holy, beloved, and who he's promised to make you. And God also gives Abraham a second sign of his covenant faithfulness. Circumcision. Uh, He identifies the covenant with circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin. And note that God talks about the covenant in verse 4, and then he refers to circumcision as the covenant in verse 10. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant so much that he talks about them interchangeably. But here's the burning question that most of you are probably asking right now. Why circumcision? This seems all kinds of unnecessary and weird. (laughs) That's the best amen I have ever heard in church. But for one, it was bloody and it involved cutting. And that made that a symbol of the curse for breaking the covenant. Similar to last week as we saw in Genesis 15 where the animals would be cut apart and then the parties would walk between them. It was a display of the curses that would come upon them if they failed to maintain their ends of the covenant. May I be like these animals, ripped apart, cut apart by my unfaithfulness. It's the same here. There's blood and it vividly portrayed being cut off if they were unfaithful. Think about that for Abraham. It had been 13 years of silence from God after his doubt-filled, covenantally unfaithful moment with Hagar. And now, God appears after all those years then and he tells him to circumcise himself. What do you think is going through his mind other than, you want me to do what? Has he been cut off for his unfaithfulness? Is God coming only to judge him? Well, it's not just a sign of the curse or something else here. There's another aspect of circumcision, and that involved the reproductive organ. The covenant sign was put upon the means by which the offspring and line would be brought forth. It would be saved through childbearing. The promise would come through reproduction given by God, the means by which the seed of the woman would come forth. It was not only a sign of the curse of covenantal unfaithfulness, but of God's covenantal faithfulness. His faithfulness to keep the promise of hope and salvation to Abraham and his future generations. In other words, circumcision was a sign to point them in faith to God to fulfill his promises. The blood and the curse that were graphically seen there would hang over Abraham and his generations But the promise, though, in circumcision would direct them in faith that it would be resolved and removed. Circumcision didn't save in itself. Ishmael was given circumcision along with everyone, too. You see it in verse 22. But it's clear that he wasn't part of the promised line. Salvation requires faith. That's what trust is. Faith is a trust in God's promise, however big, or small that trust or the faith may be. And Abraham had moments of both, of big faith and of small, weak faith. But the salvation was, it wasn't in the ritual of circumcision, but the faith in the promise in the covenantal God 
and the pictures that it, that, and the promises that it pictured. But the church doesn't do circumcision. And why not? It's not that God's everlasting covenant has come to an end. It's actually because he's continued to keep it. That the promise that circumcision looked to, that which it was, they were looking to in faith, the one coming down the line, generations down, the promised salvation, the promised one actually came. God was faithful to his covenant by giving us Jesus Christ. And so the blood and the cutting of circumcision is done away with. Jesus underwent the covenant curse for our unfaithfulness on the cross. That Colossians 2, 11 through 12 refers to the crucifixion of Jesus as a circumcision because he was cut off. He was cursed for us, for our sins, for our unfaithfulness, for all the times that we have strayed and we have doubted and we've looked more like the world than we have God's people. And so a bloody covenant sign isn't needed anymore. Jesus took the curse of the blood by the shedding of his own blood. And so now he washes with water. Colossians 2, that same passage there, links circumcision with baptism and places his cross in the center as a a transition point. The blood of the first sign can be done away with, and it gives way to a new sign with water because his people are now washed clean. It's a new covenant sign, and it's still a sign of promise. It still requires faith, but like circumcision, it points us to direct our faith in the Jesus who washes us from every guilty stain. God is still a covenant God, and he still gives promises of his covenantal faithfulness to his people in their doubts and in, in, in their anxieties. And baptism, then, is intended to stoke our faith. It's not just his promise that's spoken to us that we hear. It's the promise also that's seen and that's felt. It's not this meaningless rite of passage. We receive baptism. We observe other baptisms. It's all for our spiritual good. We see his faithfulness continuing generation after generation for thousands and thousands of years. And when our faith is waning, and it seems like that once hot fire of faith within us has been reduced to embers, we need water poured out. And that might sound strange to pour water on the smoldering remains of our weak faith as if it would douse it. But this water doesn't douse our faith. This water actually stokes it. It brings it back to life. The water of baptism that's poured out on the flames of our faith is, acts more like gasoline than it does water. It blows it up. It enlivens it rather than smothering it because it can see, it can feel that God's promises are actually real and they are true. God gives signs of his promises to doubters to bolster our faith in our times of weaknesses and in our difficulties in believing that all of his promises to us are found in Jesus. He gives us something concrete because sometimes our sins and our doubts and our situations in life seem more real to us than Jesus in that moment. And that's why baptism is for doubters just like circumcision was for Abraham. We need signs of his covenant faithfulness to boost our faith and enliven us spiritually so that we can also then live lives of better response to him. 
But baptism isn't the only sign that he gave. Jesus has also given us another sign of his promise, the sign of his promise at the table, that all who come and receive him in faith will never be cast out, that our covenant relationship is dependent upon his initiative and his faithfulness, not ours. And why? Because the blood of the covenant is at this table. The bloody curse and circumcision has been done away with by the blood of Jesus' cross. He was cut off for us so that we then might be welcomed by God. And as we come to the table this morning by Jesus' invitation, he's reminding you of that promise yet again. If you're here this morning and if you are struggling with your faith, if you're feeling, I feel like Abraham. I feel like I've let God down. I'm really trying to figure out who he is in, in, in the middle of this circumstance that I'm in. And I'm having such a hard time holding on to him. I failed so much. You know what? Don't let that struggle with faith hold yourself back. What you need is actually to be given the sign of his covenant faithfulness to you again. And so come and eat by faith. That's what we do. And be fed by him again. Let's pray.